some other things. So if there are others who would like to, to start off now, they can raise their hands. Yes, please. Uh, you can state your name. Uh, uh, my name is Tore. Wonderful, thank you. But as the story is fantastic. But I have more boring concern or more standing uh, interest to both of us, actually, uh, when it comes to it. If you are able, and you seem to be able, to quote the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, including a phrase in the preamble, which I, since I've worked with only for 20 years, haven't really made much of, now I see it is fantastic. It says, um, all, are, all human beings are entitled to dignified treatment everywhere in the world. Regardless of where, where they came from, if you can call, if that is something which suffices, and such phrases there are more of them suffice for a cosmo for a cosmopolitanism in line with hospitality, uh, not a right to, to stay wherever you want, but. Treated decently. I think the main problem that I have, because I work at the place where the intellectual prestige pioneers are lawyers and Norwegian lawyers are positivists. So I would see the main problem is if we can use these texts, these internationally codified texts, as law, then we have solved the problem in a sense. Uh, the problem is that is the timidity of international law. I agree with you that uh, uh, President Bush certainly undermined, and so we are happy that he has difficulty, and he had, and his uh, friends in the government of that time had difficulty traveling because of a justice cascade. Um, uh, but frankly. Isn't, isn't the legal problem, you, you want to have legal status, uh, if you, if, isn't the problem to have our courts, our, our, to follow um, the sometimes you, some utopian wording of the international instruments? I'm wondering whether, how you think of the conceptualizing, uh, how you think of the realization of of making hard-headed legal reality out of out of such formula as you quoted, yeah. uh, I, I I I am stunned by the problem, and I would like you to comment more on just that. How do we make legal reality out of the pious formula of international law, including this wonderful passage in the, the second of the preface articles? Um. I will try. Could you, I think you must be. Uh, uh, I, I will try. Thank you, Tori, for this, uh, for this question. Um, as uh, you know, there has been discussion about the status of the UDHR right from the very beginning. And uh, some international lawyers like Hans Kelsen and Herschel Lauterbach thought that if there was not a you know, human rights court right then, that this would be quite useless. 
But at the time, it was even a miracle that the UDHR was articulated because of all the controversies in the committee, particularly between the Russian and the U.S. delegations. It took enormous effort. So the document is in many ways also a document of a political compromise, but I still think that those 24 articles are enormously, enormously powerful. It states that, you know, in the declaration that these are, you know, ideals that should govern. It sets a standard for all human nations to live up to. So the UDHR does not have the status of, uh, does it have the status of law? It doesn't really. Then it comes, I mean, there's debate about it. And there are many, there are some international lawyers that want to, to see it as uh, having the status the status of law. Now, but precisely because of these ambiguities, there were two other international law documents. The International Covenant on Civil and Economic um, Political, the, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Cultural and Social Rights. You know, together the, the, you know, the Universal Bill of Rights. And the need to formulate them came because, precisely because of the ambiguities affecting the UDHR. And of course, for treaty signatories, these two Bill of Rights are our law. Now, um, I have looked at the, at the number of signatories. Okay, There are 195 states with seats in the United Nations and some observer uh, nations like the Palestinians uh, without state status. In the case of both international rights covenants, and this is in one chapter of my new book, chapter seven, mm. if I may refer to it, because uh, if you want the numbers, I may not get them exactly right. Both covenants are signed by about 168 to 172 of the nations of the world. So the number of signatories is amazing, but of course, signing to these covenants does not mean immediately that you implement them. Nation states are very s smart. They also place RUDs, reservations, understandings, and declarations. For example, in one of the covenants on cultural rights, there is a clause about the linguistic rights of cultural minorities. France, France placed an exception on it because it does not want to acknowledge the presence of Languedoc, Occitanie, whatever you have, as a national French French uh, language. And of course, you know, I think the Turkish government never recognized that there is such a thing as a Kurdish language, but they have opened up a little bit in recent years. So this is the sort of the strange legal universe. I mean, what I want to emphasize, first of all, is we have to understand what is new, precisely because uh, there is also so much discouragement and uh, justifiable feelings of despair about international institutions. I mean, who cannot be upset about the condition in Syria? But on the other hand, as a US citizen now, or you know, as a, someone who comes from, am I going to call for my government? 
to intervene? No, but I do want I do want somebody to do something about you know about Syria, right? So this translates into a kind of big disappointment and cynicism about international institutions at large. And during the time of the United Nations, and during the time of the Iraq War, the purpose of the Bush government was really to take the United Nations apart. And I say, with all its faults, it is the only worldwide institution that we have. And it has to be there. Fix it. Don't destroy it. So you raise some of the questions about paradoxes, and my answers are just like thinking through the same issue. I don't think anyone has a perfect, perfect answer, but there is something new in our world, and we have to see how we can strengthen it. Yeah, thank you. Um, <coughs> I just I post one of my questions, and I have another one on the, on the list there. But I, I would I would like you to to to, to um, Say a few words about the place of, of the nation state in your scheme. As far as I can see, your your uh, your uh, your your uh, multi-level uh, scheme with regard to um, states and, and supranational entities, they are in a way um, needed for for making up a kind of rep republican federalism. That is, that states should be checked and these kind of things. But but this in a way the place for 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 nationalism in in or or the nation state in in your. Uh, in your uh, in your scheme, I raise this question because there is often talked about benign nationalism, especially in Norway, which is a small country. Of course, we can afford to be inward-looking and nationalistic, but but we should not forget that uh, that the nation-state is a potentially warmongering system that needs to be constrained and checked. Nationalism pits us against them. It leads to homogenization of populations, to ex exclusions, and to suppression of minorities. Nationalism makes democracy into a community of faith that egoistically governs itself without much concerns for other interests. So, so some guys would say that, yeah, there is the nationalism comes down to, to racism. It cannot be, it cannot be defended or justified. Basically, it is racism if you try to to uh, to go the whole way down. But then, on the other hand, there is a a, a um, national sovereignty has uh, has moral uh, importance as uh, as the moral principle of autonomy entails uh, the right of people to live under laws given by themselves. And to cite Martin Nussbaum, one very important part of this autonomy was the right to do things differently from one's neighbors. And you can be sure that this is important for some small countries. So I wonder if you could, uh, if if there is some reflections on your part with regard to the place of the nation state, in a sense, in your uh, in your scheme, and and or a nationalism that comes comes with it. Um, yes. Um, I I think I want to begin with Hannah Arendt. You know, thank you for this question um, because. Um, uh, she observed in her great work, The Origins of Totalitarianism, um, it was a formula that is misunderstood, that there can always be a conflict, she said, between the principle of the nation and the principle of the modern state. Mm. And the terminology, in the terminology of the nation state, we create a hyphen, mm. and we turn to conflate the two. What Hannah Arendt meant uh, by this is uh, that uh, nationalism, and historians distinguish between ethnic and civic mm -hmm. nationalisms, right? But particularly ethnic nationalism is always about the privileging of a dominant group, either 
in virtue of its language, its religion, its history, and its uh, culture. Whereas any modern nation state involves its others. And so there can always be a tension between the rights of others who are then reduced to the status of minorities who are not given citizenship, who are marginalized, and the privileged, uh, the privileged nation. Now, there are some historical formations of the nation, the civic nation. Uh, Republican France was considered always an example. Certain strands in the United States, there is civic nationalism in the United States. It isn't just liberal cosmopolitanism. Uh, so uh, the, I think that uh, one has to be very attentive to this tension between the nation and the state. Mm. You see, I come from a country that is very large yeah. and that has had a very strong and a very chauvinistic form of nationalism, and it still does. So there is the nationalism of big countries, and then there is the nationalism of small countries. Yes. But in between, we have to think about uh, this project of um, uh, civic nationalism, which for me becomes really very much a project of democratic self-determination. Mm -hmm. And maybe I just sort of presuppose this contrast between the ethnos and the demos and always think of how the ethnos can become, you know, uh, a demos. Because you know, every human community is going to have its memories, its language, um, or more than one language. You know, look at Canada, uh, its multiplicity, and, and we can't just sort of wish this away, but we have to be attentive to, you know, the history uh, of nationalism, you know, particularly in the European and Middle Eastern uh, context, and I don't know enough about about Asia, but these are some of its dangers. Hmm. Okay, yeah. Thank you. Funny. Um, Hello. My name is Daniel Gauss. Yeah, thank you for a wonderful lecture. Um, I have a question about your description of contemporary political discourse in Europe. <laughs> and on the one hand, you described that um, uh, cosmopolitanism is an idea that has gained foothold in our thinking. And you, you refer to the human, human rights separation and that there is a jurisgenerative effect to these ideas. And on the other hand, you describe the um, political discourse in the French and the Danish and the Dutch society as kind of an opportunistic intellectual discourse. But at the same time, these societies, and exactly these societies, are kind of often uh, used as role models of liberal political thinking. And now my question is, um, how do, would you describe the relationship between liberal political thinking and these cosmopolitan ideas? Because what I understand is that these are kind of intrinsic parts of this liberal culture, but at the same time there seems to be a problem right now in these societies. And is, do you think this is a kind of a learning process that is reversed, or is there some other uh, uh, reasons for this, maybe. Um, uh, again, a very good um, and very good and fascinating question. I could uh, talk for a long time without. I don't think that um, uh, coming um, to a very clear. Let me let me let me just come back uh, to something that you said 
You seem to be suggesting that there is something about liberal political thinking that is also at the same time tipping into its opposite. Um, uh, I don't know if you know um, if I understood you correctly. Now let me let me say why I'm I'm mentioning this. There is a, a significant school of thought, uh, so-called post-colonial political theory that sees liberal political thought as always having contained a moment of the exclusion of the other. And here um, there's been tremendous work done on the thought of, for example, of John Stuart Mill. It has mainly come from Indian thinkers and so on who have sort of shown this kind of more paradoxical relationship. Uh, I think there is a great deal of truth to that, uh, and uh, but I think that this can be used to debunk liberalism, I mean the relationship between liberalism and imperialism, or in fact you can use it as what I would call a process of democratic iteration to uncover the prejudices of liberal thinking and to include the others, because every form of thought will have its blind spot. I mean, I'm answering you now philosophically, and then I'll come to the politics of the situation, because uh, you asked about, you know, liberal uh, political political uh, thought, and um, now what uh, seems to me to have happened, uh, if I may. So, as part of the discourse of Denmark and Holland and less so in France, is this emergence of kind of uh, self-righteous Protestant fundamentalism. It's a dangerous moment in the sense that it privileges one form of the relationship between politics and society, one form of the relationship of the individuals to God, and it identifies itself with tolerance and everyone else with intolerance. By the way, if one extended this philosophical critique, Judaism would not be spared. And precisely because there is such ignorance about Judaism as well, in contemporary Europe, that one does not understand that if you're going to go down this route, of theological you know, kind of critique, that you will also run into problems not just with Islam, but with Judaism and maybe other religions, other religions as well. Uh, so uh, this is uh, an issue about the limits of tolerance and about the models that toleration involves. Okay. It probably has something to do with the decline of social democracy all over in Northern Europe, with the fact that the rise of some of these more folkish right-wing parties, you know, came also with the decline of social democracy, the decline of Keynesian um, alienation from the European Union, right? I mean, I quoted um, uh, the um, uh, passages uh, uh, there from Ian Buruma, who knows? Of course, the uh, uh, the Dutch context very very well, and this has this has of course you know puzzled puzzled everyone. I mean, there are 
There are now also some other issues that are emerging in the political culture, for example, between North and South Europe. Compare the discussion about the admission of Turkey, right? UK, Italy, Spain, Hungary are pro-Turkish admission, have always been pro-Turkish admission since this debate started. You can say, well, because the Brits only want a common market, they don't want an Europäische Staat, as you know, Angela Merkel may say. Well, who wants a European state? Anyways, I mean, you know, you can go, but so there are also interesting divisions between North and South Europe. To give another example, uh, Spain, you know, uh, I go to Spain a lot because of my own roots and background and so forth. Uh, is a Sephardic Jew. Spain, uh, up until very recently, has had a remarkable policy of uh, amnesty of undocumented migrants, a, a kind of acceptance of its own Arabic heritage, of acknowledging its own otherness. Uh, so European countries are very, very different right now. I mean, the political culture is going, within Europe, is going in very different ways. And let me just say something about France. Uh, I think that in France, the collapse of the left, the rise of the nouveau philosophe, and it has generated a kind of uh, problem in progressive culture that is really quite remarkable, quite unbelievable, I would say. I mean, when I grew up, I mean, you know, my generation, we looked to France. We did not look to Germany. Who looked to Germany? Only, you know, weirdos like me who were interested in philosophy. You know, we listened to Camus, we listened to Sartre, and, you know, France was where progressive opinion was. Where are the French intellectuals now? What has happened? Where are the French intellectuals other than Bernard-Henri Lévy, you know, going to Libya and, you know, coming and talking back to his friend Sarkozy? Don't get me started. I'll just get, <laughs> I'll uh, amuse you a lot. But something, something has also happened to progressive culture, you know. We don't have the voice that stands up uh, high. Actually, you know, some of Bernard-Henri Lévy's public proclamations have been, have been okay. So... I don't quite know how to bring everything that you say under a common denominator. And uh, ideological currents, um, as well as socioeconomic malaise, and this kind of um, strange project of, of you know, Europe. I mean, I am pro-EU. Pro, uh, I think it would be a disaster if this thing collapsed. It would prove to everyone that nation-state egotism can never be overcome, that you know, people cannot really live together, that we cannot build new institutions. Yeah, yeah very, very good, because this, this, my, this, uh, this was a good introduction to my last question, because say, nobody would like, a, who would like a state in Europe, for example, or, or on, the, on the world level? <laughs> No, maybe, but 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 what can what do we have and what can what can work and and and, and so I, I I wonder if your your scheme again in in this sense where you have this kind of, of bundling of uh, sovereignties and and there is a check for for everyone into they are interlocking in in global and local you are interlocking in a very global global local and national levels and there are many processes of democratic iterations. 
and where civic society civic society plays a, a, a big role. Is this enough, in a sense, to, to, to sustain a, a, a kind of order that can protect the human rights and, and also perhaps realize some goals? Because and if and if you see look to Europe now, isn't there isn't there a problem with regard to, to having a to, to not have enough power at the supranational level in order to put through things? You have a kind of governance structure when it comes to the economic area. You have a soft law and 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 and, and these kind of uh, kinds of things and and uh, and people commit themselves to common rules, but 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 uh, there are breaches all the time, non-compliance. And people are liars and cheaters and and all these kind of things that, that don't don't hold the, the budget rules, don't observe the, the, the budget rules. So, in a sense, isn't Europe also an example of, of that there may be more may be needed in order to to get things going and 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 working? And and is this law law without the state? Is this uh, is this possible? Isn't it as our common German favorite would say corrupt politics. It comes down to corrupt politics because there is the, there is no one to to keep them accountable. How accountable? How can we kick out the rascals when they do bad things and these kinds of these kinds of things? How can this transnational system of governance um, um, work? And I see that you are in your work. You are. Yeah, you are close to this position, but on the other hand, you are also pointing to institutions. Institutions are very important for you, and 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 uh, they need to be. Uh, you should not have what is it the faith, uh, uh, the good uh, believe in the good faith of of the elites and these kinds of things. But how do we institutionalize a system here that can that can uh, that can work without the uh, estate? As you, when you come to civic to the nation state debate, then you point it to the state as something perhaps different to the nation, and perhaps that is, that is where the civilizing force lies. But when it's come to supranational, you, you, there is much talk about institutions, but supranational powers which may be needed from time to time, also for the United Nations. So, where is your position here? Is there a, can we can we get some more out of this? Thank you. <laughs> Uh, uh, thank you again. Um, how to save the world? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Five minutes or less. Your scheme is for saving no, the world. No, no, no. No, it's, it's to, to give the world hope. Um, uh, you know, there's been a discussion about transnational governance versus government. Yeah. The David Held uh, School, and I know his work is very well known in uh, Scandinavian countries at large. And this uh, uh, was uh, motivated, of course, by this discussion that nobody is you know, for world government precisely because it seems as if everybody will lose a certain kind of autonomy. And uh, you know, how can you even imagine a kind of quasi-voting system? Although sometimes when I look at India, the fact that they vote for one month and they manage to vote, mm. or Brazil, that they use, you know, uh, the banking credit card system as opposed to my country where we're not able to count votes anymore. The United States, I sometimes ask myself, <clears throat> now, there are some examples, uh, I haven't uh, done this uh, work yet, there are some examples of quasi-governance institutions uh, that have actually worked. The world has not experienced a nuclear exchange after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 
And uh, even, you know, with the controversial situation in Iraq, Iran, I'm sorry, there seem to be certain kinds of uh, modes of cooperation and modes of uh, 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 transnational governance that are not really um, uh, bad examples. I mean, this is one thing. I think that the real issue right now is the global economy. I have not said much about it, except by way of polemics against my post-neo-Marxist friends who keep trying to say all the stuff about the law and so on. It's all daba, you know, it's not relevant. But I think that the um, domain of, there are two, I think global ecology and global economy. But particularly about the economy, uh, what we are now seeing is the tremendous, really, monetarization and financialization of, of capital in an unprecedented way, where the states have now been reduced to dependent sovereignties of a world economic system. Uh, the United States that had its you know, uh, rating reduced by an international agency called Moody's, mm. right? I like that term. Moody's is moody. <laughs> so who are these agencies? These are not public institutions. Mm. They are individual rating agencies that are advising millions and millions of people whose investments are you know, bundled up in these markets and so on. And these financial situation and the mobility of liquid capital plus the new computer technology is causing havoc. Um, as we say, we have left Marx, but Marx has not left us. <laughs> This is, this is, again, something novel of the last 20, 30 years. And uh, look at what happened to the economy of your neighbor, uh, Iceland, how it pulled itself back. Look at what's happening to the question of the Greek debt. Uh, these are very difficult uh, issues, but I believe that uh, we have to think about the creation of new institutions of... Um, slowing down this market and controlling it. I mean, in the United States, uh, you know, our economy in 2008 nearly collapsed. This was an incredibly close danger. And now everybody is blaming Obama for not having done better about it, whereas, you know, the whole, you know, situation was so dangerous that he actually had more conservative economists than many of us on the left would like. Uh, to try to pull the country out of the brink of disaster. So, um, yes, I have not said much mm. about these institutions. I uh, would like to be able to say more, but uh, I think that we cannot, we cannot ignore the significance of the transnational economy. It is, again, one of the first issues. And I do believe that there are things that can be done. I, I mean, uh, the former uh, prime minister of the UK, Gordon Brown, is doing some very interesting thinking about this. It's not as if there is nothing to be done. Financial markets can be taxed. Okay, Offshore foreign investments can be taxed. Uh, the speed with which stocks are traded 
can be limited or reduced. There are things that can be done that will need to be to be done. Yeah, yeah, but but you see, the, 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 some countries are against it, also, especially the Brits, and, and then and then we and then they they have their their veto in, in this sense. So so that's why our interest in, in supranationalism had some some power above the states that can do something with the these guys who will not obey by the better argument. But uh, Eric is the last uh, last question now. So Eric Fossum, Arena. Thank you uh, for a fascinating lecture. Um, I'm wondering, I, I think it's a very uh, important intuition to think about cosmopolitan as a kind of regulatory ideal or a norm or a mode, if you want. But that also might imply that co the cosmopolitan thrust is almost naturally uneven. That is, that we're talking about this is taking place probably much more in Europe, being more embedded in Europe than elsewhere. But it at least opens up the scope that the world is not, will not be in any sense evenly cosmopolitanized, but rather unevenly so. And I want to, um, to probe this a little bit by going to the European situation, um, and also to link it to your notion of democratic federations, because you, you link that very much to, of course, community to power if you want, and also to civil uh, society and social movements. But I'm wondering if that, if there might not also be implied in this also some kind of institution building. Um, not, not only in terms of working within the institutions and using them, like thinking about democratic institutions, but that it might actually also imply the development of institutions. And this, this comes back also to the role of the state and the nation in terms of, of supporting cosmopolitanism. If you think about the European situation, I'm very much inspired by uh, Yuko uh, Kurasawa, who has uh, written a book on, on the work of uh, global justice. And he, he starts from um, the role of our civil society. And he, who, who are you referring to? It, he, uh, it, his name is Yuko Kurasawa. He, he's written a book, uh, The Work of Global Justice, Human Rights as Practices. It's a beautiful piece um, where he talks about how civil society um, deal with disasters. His, his uh, take is going back to Hiroshima. And then he says, well, civil society has been vital in terms of bearing witness to these events. They have also fostered forgiveness. They have uh, taken measures and stimulated measures of preventive foresight. They have been important in providing aid and also in terms of uh, fostering universal solidarity. So he sees these as kind of mechanisms that civil society uses. What I found interesting is that many of these were actually present in the forming of the European Union. For instance, the whole point about forgiveness was a central component to fostering any kind of integration at all, at least to give it any kind of social footing. And the whole point about preventive foresight, that's a coalition union. That is precisely to prevent war in the future. Aid, of course, is built into this. And of course, the whole point about solidarity that we're discussing now. So the institutionalization you've seen in the European Union is to some extent also a kind of extension of this, the mechanisms that civil societies we've seen, but putting them into new types of institutions. So it seems to me that these are then embedded and are helping to, uh, if you want, even the jurisdictive uh, element, because of course the integration process is embedded in law. So I think that that some of the mechanisms that we can normally identify in civil society have, for particular historical reasons, been embedded in the European setting, and given that a particular cosmopolitan trust. Um, yes. Um, 
This uh, permits me to answer something that I was also thinking of in terms of supranational or transnational institutions, and I want to begin by saying a few things about regionalism. Uh, as you may know, in some of the work on cosmopolitan governance, the concept of regionalism, including in Habermas's work on the world constitution, is playing a role. And uh, I am not really in favor of institutionalizing too much regionalism, although I see two areas in particular where I think regionalism makes an enormous uh, difference. One is in terms of human rights issues and courts, and the other is in terms of just the work of historical memory. Uh, I think that uh, probably the next a continent on which we are going to see, we already see, a more active and interesting human rights court like the ECHR is going to be Latin America. It's already, it's already beginning to happen. There are common uh, traditions of legal education. There are common histories of military dictatorship. And, you know, there is a kind of resurgent uh, democratic oppositional, you know, culture in these areas. So that is one area in which I see it. And of course, uh, the uh, reconciliation around memory, in some ways, <laughs> can only be among peoples who have these contiguous, contiguous histories. By the way, I should mention one of my most talented students at uh, Yale, Peter Veroshek, is doing a very good uh, doctoral dissertation on the problem of the construction of post-European memory and the formation of the European Union. And uh, this whole question in particular, not just the discourse about the Holocaust, but also the memory of French-German reconciliation and you know what a, what a crucial role that plays. But the reason why I am not happy with Habermas's proposal for regionalism that also includes um, economic blocks is because I, precisely because I really do believe that world trade is cosmopolitan. Canada has more to do with Hong Kong, maybe today, than it does with the United States. And all of Latin America has more to do with China than it has to do with the, you know, increasingly with the United States. So I don't think that the idea of regionalism is a very good, these regional blocks of socio-economic justice that he envisages is a very good idea. I'd like to leave this as fluid and as cosmopolitan and so on as it is. Uh, but having said that, um, there are, uh, there is a need, you know, to build up these institutions also of civil society. I mean, there is now a lot of discourse about the Mediterranean North African region, and there is a whole discussion about the emergent culture or the recovery of the emergent Levantine culture of the Eastern Mediterranean. Tunisia and Egypt have a lot more to do with Greece and Turkey and Italy and, you know, uh, Lebanon. And, you know, uh, the influence of a former, you know, French culture there, the recovery, the recovery of those traits. So these are all these are all developments in our, in our times uh, that makes me think that um, uh, the Cosmopolitan Project is actually taking root also in terms of what I call new political geographies. 
there are new reconfigurations. And I don't know enough about Asia, but if you follow the work of some colleagues like Arjun Apadurai, an Indian scholar, Arjun talks about an, a kind of new Asian cosmopolitanism, whether uh, whether Indian or Chinese inspired, uh, but there are also there's also this new language, you know. So um, I, you know, in in some strange way. So I mean, you know, Europe is a is a model, but it may not be either the it may not be the only one, or if if even if it is sui generis, there may be also other models that are now emerging as well. Yeah, thank you so much for this uh, wonderful uh, and uh, very interesting um, uh, lecture. It was very, uh, very many th thoughts uh, for, for yeah for, for, for thoughts here. For food, for, very much food for thought here, and it was a very grand, grand scope that you laid out here. So, so a very grateful for you for that you could come to us and, uh, and a sign of our gratitude is that we will give you some music from uh, from uh, from the nation state so <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.